Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, Tuesday. Um, Tuesday, August 17th. <clears throat> I was away for a couple days. That's why I haven't done anything. I, too, get a little bit of rest. Anyway, I was in Lakewood um, for a number of days at my daughter's, um, the backs, and uh, I had a wedding to perform over there. <clears throat> so that's why I haven't been able to get it work. Now I just got back to Baltimore. <clears throat> Let me see if I can catch up. I, as per... Um, my commitment to uh, Rabbi Stephen Weil. I'm going to talk today about the Maharil. Uh, Rabbi Weil himself, as you'll see in a second, is from a Yekisha background. The Maharil is Mr. Yeki in a certain way. I'll try to be invited at. <clears throat> the Maharil is a gigantic subject. And as always, I have to condense by definition. But uh, it's a fascinating personality. And to tell you the truth, that's the reason I did the Trimus Edition last week. Since I said I was going to my reel, but I didn't feel like doing him exactly yet, I figured I'll do the Trimus Edition, who's uh, who's easier to put together, because um, I just do these things, you know. But anyway, today's podcast is being sponsored, as I said, by Rabbi Stephen Weil. I'll read you what he said, um, and the Weil family. It's in memory of, I think, his grandfather. Remember, Yisachar ben Shmuel Halevi, Bernard Weil, who led his branch of the family out of the Unterfranken in Germany, so that's near Würzburg. I was just at a Shiba house there, somebody from Würzburg, in February of 39. That was a good move, baby, <laughs> to get out just before the Second World War and reestablish the family cattle business 50 miles from Buffalo, you know, in New York. He led and raised a family committed to God, Torah, the Jewish people, and Israel. Pretty good. Despite being in an area, listen to this despite living in an area in which the closest Jews were 35 miles away. He didn't say the closest from Jews. <laughs> the closest Jews were 35 miles away. Um, it was a man of extreme integrity and largesse. Well, obviously, if he left behind uh, descendants who want to honor memory this way, that's the truth. So I pay tribute to his memory. I thank Rabbi Well. As I mentioned before, I was thinking of doing um, a series... I don't know if I can, the series on Shalos and Chubas, in which case we would approach the responses separately. Um, that depends if we put this up to see if I can get enough supporters to do it. Uh, but meanwhile, I'll try to stay on top of just maintaining the regular uh, series. Okay? Uh, let's get right down to business. The um, Maril, not the Maral, the Maril. I know for some people, you know, this acrostic, that acrostic, but it's a big difference. Is um, was a famous rabbi in Germany in the late 1300s and early 1400s, okay? 14th, 15th century. Now, again, I know that doesn't mean that much to people, but if you paid attention last week and some other times, maybe it starts to. The 13th, 1400s was bad times to live in Germany. Uh, by the time you finish the 1400s, the Jews were kicked out of one district after another, 
until they were almost all expelled out of all Germany, as I mentioned. But the time I'm talking about, uh, that was not the case. Nevertheless, there were tremendous persecutions. Our hero, Maril, which is Yaakov Alevi, right? that's why they call him Maril, Yaakov Alevi, a Molin, uh, was a Mainz guy. So we're dealing with Western Germany, Yekish Abiyekis, Minhag Harinus, as they call it, the old German uh, customs, if I can talk in those terms. Um, and he lived at a time, let me see, he's born in the 1360s, and he died in 1420. So he lived to be about 60 years old, possibly 65, something like that. Which is, you know, long lifespan in those days. And uh, he personally was lucky. I'll say this in general. De Mario was a lucky guy in a number of respects. First of all, in terms of fame. And second of all, in terms of personal security and pronoso. Many of the zones we encounter were not so lucky in this, that, and the other. He was. He lived in the middle of a storm. Before him were terrible pogroms. After him were terrible pogroms. To the right, to the left. In his time, there were pogroms, but not where he lived, as we shall see. Okay? But it was a terrifically uh, scary time, because I can say that looking in hindsight. At that time, they didn't know. If you were a German Jew, especially in those years, you just simply don't know what tomorrow could be. Some nut can show up in town, and they make a pogrom and kill everybody. I mean, that's, they constantly happen. Now, he was born in Mainz, which is a small town. Today it's a big town. It was a small town in the 1300s. I tell you right now, if he's born in the 1360s, it's right after the bubonic plague, the Black Death. And Rova, the city, and Rova, the Jews, were dead from the disease. Imagine today, just to give you a little bit of an idea, imagine today if nobody had the slightest idea of how to deal with corona, with covid not the slightest idea. And he did everything wrong. So the number of deaths would be much bigger. Right? Everybody coughed on everybody, every diss and everybody. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'm not getting to the vaccine or anti Pasha, suppose I told you that we knew nothing about nothing. All we knew was people dying. Nobody had an idea how, why. And if they had ideas, it was all wrong. So, you know, it would sweep everybody. Okay? As it is, it's a bummer. It would sweep everybody. That was the situation, my friends, in the 1300s, obviously. They got this bubonic business. You know, it doesn't matter where it came from. I don't want to give a history of that. Uh, nobody had any idea what to do with that. <clears throat> and some people just died right and left. Who survived? The answer is, some will survive. You know, that's the way it goes. The doctors, the scientists will tell you. It's odds. Some will survive. Now, so the city was mostly wiped out. The Jewish community was mostly wiped out. This is how it was everywhere. Chutzmanet. They sometimes blamed the Jews for bringing the plague and they killed them. So it was a bummer. Now, his father was the Rav of the Jewish community in Mainz. I think I've told you before, we're dealing with a very tiny community. I would imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, you know, several tens of families. 20, 30, 40, 50 families. Maybe 60 families. Something like that. Right? It's not a large kahil, like you imagine. There are many shoals that you attend have more people. But by the standards of that time, his father was a great Tamil Chacham, and he was the chip of the old block. So in other words, it was clear that he comes from a prestigious family to be rub of an old community, famous community like Mainz. Remember, Rashi learned there in Yeshiva. I mean, you had to have the and the knowledge. 
And he was, happened to be, um, the best student of his father. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it doesn't always work out like it. Sometimes just nepotism. In his case, not nepotism. He happened to be his father's son, and he also, and therefore he succeeded his father. But he also happened to be, he was the best guy. That's qualified. Sometimes it happens. Um, you know, he was Eloy and all that sort of thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about him. And I guess to learn in a small community, I'm just trying to give you what's called social history. Imagine if you are in the, born in the 1360s, 1370s, and the boys growing up to be 10 years old, 20 years old, and so forth. You know, you're it's a small Jewish community, but the whole community is not that big. And uh, you're the best guy there. The father runs the yeshiva, as is the old Av Basin system <clears throat> that I've spoken about many times. The 1300s and 1400s is mamish when it happened. You know, the guy was a rabbi, was also the Rosh Yeshiva, supported by the community in some sense or another. The yeshivas obviously were tiny. Imagine 10, 20, 25 guys, something like that. And he would be a very good guy. At some point, wait, 15, 16, 17, I don't know, father sends him off. Have you go to Malcolm Torah, go learn somewhere else also. Don't only learn by me. He went to Vienna. But this time, it's like I told you last week, Truman's edition. Austria, Vienna, Wiener Neustadt, Marburg, these places were hopping, popping Jewish communities in the sense that they weren't large, but they did have Rabbanami yeshivas. And if you were a member of the elite, you were a player um, in the intellectual world at that time. There are many members who were not met, were from the elite, but there were those that were. Again, I emphasize again and again and again, not large communities. There he marries the daughter of the rabbi in Vienna. That goes to show you, class marries class. She had money. The reason I say she had money is it's very famous that the Muriel, maybe there was domestic tension, I don't know, the Muriel didn't want to be supported by his wife. Which means that he was a weirdo in the, in the 1300s. But, uh... I said, he said something like, see, my Notice, you keep your money and support yourself out of that. And I'll support myself by being a shatkin, which is a business. And so here you have a great Talmud Chacham, 19, 20 years old, getting married, whatever, however old. He's learning up a storm over there. And then his father dies. Around the time he's 20, 25, something like that. We, the years are a hard part because some say he was born in 1360, some say 1365. There was a theory of 1362. What do you care? You know, you get the general idea. All we know is by the late 1380s, when he was in his 20s, he succeeded his father, which means he was a bar hockey. Not simply they elect him because he was his father's son, although that is true. And many times it happened in Germany, if you were the father's son, that might, in certain circumstances, get you the job. But it so happened he's a bar hockey. And he remained for almost the next... Rest of his life, about 40 years approximately. Something like that, 35, 40 years. They say he died in 1427. So whatever. Um, in Mainz until like the very end. Then he moved somewhere. Now, um, so here is somebody who was a rabbi in a community in Germany. And he made a yeshiva there. If you remember, I once spoke about the Mari Wal, Ryaka Wal, who was his Talmud Mubak. I'm talking about the Rebbe now. The Maril, Ryaka Levi Mullen. Ben Moshe, the father was Moshe, yeah. Now, um, so far, so good. As the rabbi in Mainz, 
as I said before, he really was that good. And so his reputation spread. He attracted some very good guys to his yeshiva. It got a shame, reputation. And you might say like this, that's where he spent the rest of his life? So then what are we interested in him for? There are plenty of people like that. So here's the thing. Now, Morello is fascinating on a number of levels. As I said before, in a talk like this, I can only address two or three. One goes as follows. I told you before, he learned for a couple of years in Yeshiva Vienna. Who ran the Yeshiva Vienna? People you've never heard of. They were famous people in their day. I told you, there's lucky and there's unlucky. Unlucky means you could be a big rabbi. I'm really... But for some reason, your reputation does not take off. That's all. They're not well known today. So when he was, it was Romero Levy in Vienna, especially Robin Kleusner. Who are they? You know, they're big rabbis, obviously. And they were my spiel on him. Robin Kleusner was the man who was into Minhagen. Okay? So, as I understand it, and listen closely, you're familiar with the following phenomenon even today. This guy's a Magashir, and that guy's the Paisig at Yeshiva. Right? What does that mean? The first guy has his talents as a Magashir, as a Rabbi Kalevsky type, you know, or Shmuel Wazowski type, to be explained to Lumdus. That's his Kayach. Okay? I didn't say he doesn't know the Paschal, but that's his main Kayach. There's another guy who's just naturally attracted to Allah Lamaisa. The first guy is in Didiksos and in the Sivas, and, you know, the Shittimukabets, all that sort of thing that has to do with the Lumdas. Okay? The brisker stuff. And that's what the, that's what your job is giving over to the Talmudim is. <clears throat> if it was the 1300s and 1400s, when we're talking about, it was the famous three categories of people that I've described before. I don't want to cause it over today, but from the three big yeshivas, you taught people how to learn in the, with the Augsburgers, the Regensburgers, and the Nuremburgers. These are different type of kashas. Like you say today, the brisker stuff, the Telzer stuff, the other, you know, like that. And um, that was what you do. So you have a Ian Shear and a Bekia Shear. Shear Pshat, they call it. And they that's how they approach it in various sorts of ways. <clears throat> but then there's another type of guy whose natural Natiya, right, is Halacha Lamaisa. Right? Halacha Lamaisa, he's the type of And that's the type of guy in Yeshiva we give it. Halacha Shir, Mishnah Burr things, things like that. Yeridea. You know what I'm talking about. Now, Yeshiva we're talking about in the late 1300s, because our hero was born in the 1360s. If he's in a young man, Yeshiva in, in Vienna, it's around the year 1380, 1382, 1383, approximately. So, he has the Maram Alevi, Maram Siegel, uh, who was Russian Shiva. He'd be like the, the purple guy. And then Avram Klausner was a Halacha guy. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. Listen closely. If I say Halacha guy, he knows the Shulchan He knows the Nose Kelma Shulchan the Shach Modern terminology, he knows the Mishnah Bor and the Archa Shulchan and that sort of thing. Right? Negris Moshe, you know, this, the halachic sources. But if it's the 1300s, there is no such thing as the Shulchan yet. 
right? The Ramah doesn't even exist. You see what I'm saying? It's way back when. So what, do you, what is the Halakha Lamaisim? How does one do that? You understand what I'm saying? There's no book to look up. All you had was the, the Rambam and the Torah. The Rambam isn't of much help. The Rambam just simply spits out what the Gemara says. So sometimes, as we all know, what the Gemara says is what we do. But at other times, either you read something in the Gemara, but it's not what we do. Like you see in the very first page of Shas with the Krishma. Or there are a lot of other things that are post-Gemara that become part of Jewish life. How do you ascertain? How do you figure out? What does it mean to give a halachashir in the 1300s? It's a good question I'm asking. Now, if the short answer goes like this. You explain what the minhagim were of the Friedika, of the early ones. So if I'm closer, you want to know, you know, what did the Rush do? Mar Rottenberg, Tosus, Rashi, Machsavitri, these guys. You see? Where are you going to find them? Um, Whatever the sources were there. You have the Ravi or the Ravman, you know, had certain sources over there, but they're not necessarily, you know, uh, lumbish and populistic sorts of things that come in this year of the, of the Magashir. And so, the person who's trying to explain to the students what they do, Halach and Maisa, Hey, you guys are with me learning in the year 1382. Within a short while, a number of years, you guys will be Rabbanim in your own communities. And you'll come up with questions about Shabbos, Kashos, Tyrus, Mishbacha, Gittin, Kedushin, whatever. You understand? Nikva. What do you do? You understand? What are you, what are you actually going to do? You see what I'm saying? That's going to be a trick. You can't simply go by what it says in the Rambam. Because that might be what we, it might not be how you poskin. You certainly can't go by what it says in the tour, if they had access to the tour, which I think they did, because it's just a, a digest of opinions. So you're going to have to know and say, you know, this problem with the mikvah actually came up a generation or two or three or four or five or six ago. And at that time, Rashi said this, or the Rush said that, or Abenu Tom argued with somebody else like this and that and the other. And in this book, it came out this way. You see what I'm saying? And forget mikvah. What about tachnun? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? What about yalvi yavu? What about a hundred things? What do you do, Lamaisa? Or Rosh Hashanah, when you come home from Shul? What do you eat? You know, all sorts of things. Right? All sorts of avelus. Oh, my goodness, you know. The Tara, the man, I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. And so this Avram Klauser really tried to work... And he put out um, a safe and hug him, in which he's trying to get clear what are the customs. Because when it comes to customs, and when I say customs, in other words, what did this God will do versus that God will do, sometimes it's unclear. You know how, how, how notoriously unreliable memory is. On the other hand, you have nothing but memory. And so you have to sift through and cross-examine, do all sorts of things. According to Shri Yagun, that's what Damarayim did. So, um, the reason I'm saying it is because our hero and a friend of his went to the same sheep at the same time. Our hero was a Marel. Marel, I'm sorry. The friend was uh, Isaac Turnauer. Turnau is a town farther to the east. 
Remember, our hero is in Mainz. Now, I don't know what to tell you. The only thing I'd tell you is, um, you got to know a little bit of geography. So go on the map if you care to, and you'll see where Mainz is. You know, I, I, I'll tell you a good a good trick. Uh, go, if you want to have an idea, this is what, what I do sometimes. Uh, I just told you about a place called Mainz and another place called Turnau, which would be in German, T-H-Y-R-N-A-U. So uh, go Google the distance between Mainz and Turnau, and they'll give you a map. And you can see the road, and you'll see in front of you where we're talking about. Mainz is to the left of Frankfurt, which means it's farther to the west. It's on the Rhine River. And Turnau, if you go, is all the way across Germany, across Bavaria. And it's on the border between Bavaria and Austria. You, if you know what I'm talking about, you'll see it on the map. Close to Czechoslovakia, to the Czechs. No, it's much farther to the east. Each of these students went to Yeshiva in Vienna, which is, again, is far to the east. So our hero was quite a journey. <clears throat> Isaac Turnau wasn't so far. And it's the Yeshiva in Vienna... They're inspired by their Rebbe, one of their Rebbe's, the Halacha guy. But Halacha means get the Minhagim right. Each one, our hero and Isaac Turner, who live at the same time, will then go on, when they finish Yeshiva and move to their careers, to concentrate on clarifying getting Minhagim right. <clears throat> the difference is, Isaac Turner. Being farther to the east is more descriptive of the Minhagim that had emerged and evolved in the Jewish communities in what they call the Österreich, which is the eastern part of Germany, Bohemia, the Czechs, Austria, and so on and so forth. And he will work to get down straight what they do over there. Whereas the Maril, who's going to go back after his father's death to Mainz, all the way to the west, and spend his lifetime in the Rhineland, where Rabbi Wild's family's from. He will concentrate on getting him and hug him right in that part of the world. And so these same two guys live at the same time. Each one will write a minute book. Let's call one A and the other one B. Let's call them Aril A and Isaac Turner B. They'll write these books in the early 1400s. They will have tremendous hashpah in later generations. The Eastern European Jews like the Ramah will rely primarily on Isaac Turnauer and secondarily on his uh, Sefer Aloha, Amin Hagen, and secondarily on the Maril. Others in Western Germany, in place like that, will be the opposite. They'll rely primarily on the Maril and secondarily on Isaac Turnauer. So it's just an interesting time to be in the yeshiva there and see these two smart guys. And you know they're going to be Aloha people. But Aloha's mean getting clear to Minhagen. This is sometimes attributed by historians to the fact that it's after the Black Death. I don't know. I mean, there's some truth to that. But I've never been totally uh, persuaded by that particular argument. Uh, what, what can I say? Um, but let it be. The point is that the result was that there will emerge a body of literature concentrating on trying to clarify what exactly are the Ashkenazic uh, Minhagim which are like of tremendous importance, even though a lot of the muscular historians used to make fun of it, they say there's no originality and all the rest of it, but that's baloney. To get down clear what the Minhagim are is of supreme importance, and I'm going to tell you why. 
It's probably not the reason you imagine. Now, they're good minhagam and bad minhagam, as I think everybody knows. And, you know, I know Vad Yosef, every time he likes a minig, he says, oh, it's a minig. Every time he doesn't like a minig, he says, oh, minig, it's Gehenim, you know. But nevertheless, the, the solid minhagam, especially after the Black Death and the and the small, difficult communities in um, in, the, in in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire, the minig is the only institution of stability because it's so easy for a little thing to blow up into a big thing and a whole, all hell break loose over a practice or a custom that sometimes it should be this way and other times it should be that way. A constant you see in the chubas of the Ma'aril and others is there was a rove in a town and the community was going ahead and some new Talmud comes in and criticizes the rabbi from the right seeking to undermine his authority and creating a separate situation where he should take over or something like that. And as a result, tremendous machlokas breaks out and all hell is had and the only guy that's happy is the satan. You understand? This is the, the, the big problem. And I repeat what I said. Very often he attacks it from the right because that makes you look firmer. So no, I'm, I'm just going to make this up. Suppose there's a minute in the shul anybody can down for the Ahmadine without a hat. And a guy shows up and he says, Oh no, this is all wrong because the mission board, this and that, that's what you have to do with a hat. Therefore, this show's not from enough, and so on and so forth. If everybody's in the mood to move that direction, it's one thing. Very often it's not the way. And what about the rabbis there before? And what about the one who said that for the last 50, 60, 80 years, there was no such minute like that? Oh, that doesn't count. What do you mean it doesn't count? You see? What you're really doing is dissing the early ones. I want to tell you something. Uh, you know, Rosh Hashanah is coming up. Um, so everybody's familiar. Wait, let me just get the Mishnah out here for a second. One second. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Where uh, Ramagam Leo made him come and walk on Yom Kippur. Everybody knows that story. Um, you know, Quinny Ramagam Leo came out that, uh, that uh, the new moon was this day. And according to the other one, came out and he relied on the other one said he relied on bad witnesses and so on and so forth. And then everybody knew everybody knows that Rabbi Gamil forced Rabbi Yeshua to acknowledge Rabbi Gamil's authority and to publicly demonstrate on Yom Kippur that he that he held it was not Yom Kippur. Okay, and. Uh, he ran into Holochamot Rabbi Kiva, made Sari Sar Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Kiva said, just, just follow it, right? Elamodeshen. And Bali said, Dosim and Horkinus. And then Rabbi Shua, who again was very pained by being compelled to do this, ran into Dosim and Horkinus, who told him, In Boyn Lonu Lodun Al Achardina Ram Gamil, Srikhan Al Kobes and Shamadmi Mosmosha and Akshaw. If you're going to have Tainas Ram Gamil's business, what about the early business? You don't know if they were competent or not competent. And he goes on to say, It doesn't say the 70 elders, what their names were. Right? So the idea is like this. They weren't on the same level as Moshe and Aaron. Nevertheless, they were basins. So what he's trying to do over there is saying, like, you can't be Moshe, Lazar, and Shonim, or else you bring the whole house down. You see? So, to get the minute straight and say, this is what we do over here, it's like a certain defense of the local rabbi and the local 
Kehillah authorities against some guy who wants to go and make a tremendous machlokas, which happened all the time, usually by presenting themselves as firmer than the, the, than the status quo. As firmer than the status quo. So it's just an interesting period in the history. And one of the reasons that Maril and people like that became famous and popular, and they were, they got shouts and shoes from all over the world, uh, all over Europe. Because people said, these are the defenders of the normal. You understand? But real in general is very normal. Uh, the real gadolim, I shouldn't say that, but there's a certain type of gadolim that are very normal. Everybody likes them. The true Sadesha was the same way. Same way. Okay? And if you read the letters in Chubas and Maril, very normal. He's always trying to make shalom. He's always trying to keep, and, and he'll tell somebody, say, you're full of baloney. You're just trying to undermine the guy who's there already to make yourself look better. No, you're a hypocrite. And so on and so forth. Now he, and therefore, don't introduce this homer over here uh, because the minute is not that way. Or sometimes, by the way, he'll say, the rabbi's wrong, and they, you know, you have to follow the minute because there's minhagim and there's different minhagim. Now he himself, Maril, was a super from He had a lot of homers. That's completely different. What I do in my life, you know, what I do in my life is, is you know, I can be as Hasidic as I want, meaning as, as pious. I'm, I'm not being funny, I'm serious. The the, the real Godel himself was very Machmer. But for the others, he's not Machmer. And not because they can't heal it, because it's not appropriate. You follow? It's not appropriate. You know, I was at Shiva House today. I just came back from out of town to uh, uh, Rabbi Lopin. And, um, I was speaking to his wife, who I know in my class, and she had a great story. She said something to the effect, if I remember correctly, that when she grew up, they had, like, in the house, milkig, fleshig, parv, and treif. What's shot treif? Maybe it wasn't her family, but some other family. There was another family. What do you mean treif? The grandfather, long ago, said like this, I don't trust any of the deli, you know, at that time. But he didn't prohibit the family from eating it. See, I wouldn't touch any stuff. See, we call these the trave dishes. They're not trave. They were used for the deli that had asher on it, but he obviously didn't trust asher. So, points like this. <laughs> by him, they're trave, but not, but not by not by the others. You see? I thought it was a great story. Anyway, so Maril came across as trying to enunciate uh, the correct menhagim, just like with Isaac Turnauer. Uh, these were eaten up by the public. They needed these desperately. What do you do by talking? When do you skip? You see? You could have a fight over that. What do you do on Shavuos? You know, what's the order of the laning? What happens if you have two people arguing over who should get the aliyah? What is the bar mitzvah versus the chasm? We can laugh at that. It's, it's not laugh for the local rob. It's not laugh for the local president of the community or the rest of it. In which case, who knows what can happen? And so to be covetum and hug them to get the right men hug them, not the stupid ones, was quite a task. Uh, this is one of the issues that Maril became famous for. Well, not really. I don't know how it works exactly, but when he died, his student, Rosalmo Senkor, Senkor is uh, 50 miles from Mainz. Big balance in Second World War. Uh, he he wrote down, he's one of those Masada de, de Minhaga, but he, the Rebbe must have had it there. And he issued, the, the student, in other words, after Maril died, Student issued um, the Sefer Minhagim of the, of the Maril, which became one of the early books published in the 1500s, and really took off. 
as I said before, the Ramah, by the way, that's Mazel. The book came out in the 1550s, exactly at the time the Ramah decided to make the, the Shulchan Aruch. <laughs> you see? If it had been published 10, 20 years later, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have had it. Well, he probably had a manuscript copy, but the fact that it got published made a big Roshan. And uh, it's not surprising that Ramah used it, but I'll say it again. I think he uses the other one more, uh, the uh, Rebisic Turnhour. But it uh, doesn't matter. Here's the point I want to get across. It's now shortly before Rosh Hashanah. If you want to have fun and do something very interesting, and I'm serious about this, you'll try to get a hold of the Sefer Menhagen Mamarel, which has been published, or Rabbi Sats or whatever, in a very nice edition, well, quite a while ago. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, let me see, Tashmat, 1989. So, you know, 30 some years ago. <clears throat> and um, the book was arranged by the student in a very nice way, and it follows the year. And he says, this is what Marie Siegel said here. Marie Siegel said here. This is my Rebbe always said. And if you take it through, he starts with Chodesh Nisan. But I'm going to skip Chodesh Nisan and Hagola, the rest of it. And I just want to give you an idea, because I'm trying to be real over here, and make a recommendation to you, how to use it very um, interestingly, for the Yom and Narayim. And um, let me see over here. You have, eventually, Hilchus... Here we go. Hilchus Rosh Hashanah. Let's say, for example, they have Hilchus Yom Nerayim, but Dine Tainus, because remember, people used to fast for three weeks, and certainly ten days, this time of the year. You know, so you have Kfiyas Rosh Chodesh Elul, Hanhagas Ha'odim B'Chodesh Hasev, Mavsik and Lomar B'Sugit Ezimra B'Masum, Rosh Chodesh Yishlich Tov, L'Shana Tov, Tika Sevum, Shas Mitzatev, Balayla Kishim Ashkin L'Slichas, all the things that you think you know about, Okay? Now, I just want to do one of many. Give me a, 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 an idea what I'm talking about. Now, remember, he is assembling customs. They're not all from him. He says them. They can be from earlier sources. So if you get this good edition, Mechon Yushalayim, they'll give you the earlier sources if you care about that sort of thing. But I can tell you, 99% of Jews never got it from some earlier sources. They got it from the Merrill to really guide. So it says, as we all know, you eat sweet things on Rosh Hashanah. Okay? Tom Dochlin Dwar Masukin Lomar Shiksa Kashboko Shonatov Masuko. Alright, great. Okay? Now um Bechain Bashkanaz Regil Mikhil Sasunalechal Tapuch Mosak Gudbash. Of Apple and Honey. I mean you can't get more <coughs> famous apple and honey. The Wasim shop. Marie Segel Dorash, and the Marilla used to say, Now listen, I think this is just interesting. The Taima, where do you get the apple and honey from? No, there's white dafka and apple and white dafka honey. The Taima Kosabatora. <coughs> you find repeatedly in the Torah Nevi'im Ksuvim the connection with um, you know the the the, the uh, din and sweet things. Kasev Torah, Sham Sam Lo Chokum Mishpat B'Sham Nisov. It's right after they uh, cross the Red Sea. Rosh Rosh Hashanah Hu Yom Mishpat. So it says Sham Sam Lo Chokum Mishpat B'Sham. Basham Niso, so he made a chokum mishpat. It's a din, and Rosh Hashanah is Yom Mishpat, and it says Vayim Tukamayim. As we all know, that Moshe made the water sweet. God told him to throw the stick in the wood. Ratzalamba Yom Mishpat Yochel Musugin. That's a cute remez that when you get Sham Samlo Chokum Mishpat, Vayim Tukamayim. You do something to make it sweet. Ben where do you find this in the prophetic books? Gabi Abigail, 
Siva he be seriously yummy but yummus Noah. That's the story of Abigail. She was married to this guy Noah, and etc. etc. And by the time the story's over, she prevented David from killing her husband, but then he died from a heart attack. We'll see Venovel Yain Venavel Yam Sukum. That she brought to David Yain of Sukum. Here's the word Mesukum. Okay? And Aseris Yamayu Aseris Mechuba. And apparently there's some tradition that Noble died at the end of Aseris Mechuba. That's in a Gemara somewhere. Inami Mihocha. They came for Yanta, it's a Pusik. So again, there's a connection, a smichas, between Abigail coming and trying to prevent David from executing Din and her husband, which she does succeed in doing. See the Rosh Hashanah motif? And she brings up sweet things. What about Nixubim? It says, Mishma Dei Hashem Emes Tzotki Yachtov. That's in, in, in Kapitel Yotes. And it says, Midvash, Mesukim Midvash, Midvash, Sufin. Again, these are all connections between the Din on the one hand and Mesika Sweet on the other hand. Inami, Tikka Bachot Shofar, Vayachileu, Mechel Chita, Umitzur Devash Asbiyako. Right? Or if you want, or Elohim Nitzah Bada Sale right afterwards. Call them more of Rosh Hashanah Yom HaMishpat. Bechain b'sefer Ezra. What does it say? You know the story. When they thought, yeah, they started crying, and you know, when and he said, "Go eat sweet things." Right? But Amar Mari Segal, but the Maril, after he brought in these two, said, "All these sukim, as cute as they are, and they're from the Rokeach, by the way, don't really explain our custom." My time will echo tapuach. Why dafkin apple? Get anything sweet. Right? Could be anything sweet. Why an apple? There are fruits that are sweeter than an apple. So, what's up is it became a minig of Yisro, and by him, if it's a minig of the freer dicker, that's a min hug. And so he said, like this, I fall back on Kabbalah. The Romes lesodesh al tabuchim ayidul mukabalim. Right? Because it says, Do remember it? Uh, the blind Isaac smells Yaakov pretending to be Esau. And he says, I smell the clothes. And what's Rashi Shabbat? It's a Ghanadian. You know, Darizal and everything like that. Whoa! So he's saying like this the Ashkenazi Jews have the custom with the apple is, is, is a Kabbalah. I mean, it's mysticism. You see? Now, that's a tiny bit. I could go on and on and on, and you know I'm not going to, but I strongly advise you if you want to have some fun and you're able to read it, and I don't mean it to be funny at all, to get yourself a marrow, and you could do worse things in shul these next couple weeks than going to the marrow or Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and Sukkot, and uh, it's you find a lot of cute things there, and and you know some you can use, some you can't use. Every you're different than me, I'm different than you. Everybody can can find the one that they want. It's a whole world. It's a whole world. And um, this made him famous. But that was posthumously. In his lifetime, he was famous. Not for publishing this book, although he didn't publish it. For his normal childs and chubas. Meaning, people write to him for help. And I don't want to use the word of his day, but you know what I mean when I say that. Right? He had such a reputation. Now, he didn't live that long. So that means 
he was already in his 30s when he started getting all these showers. So here's a guy in his 30s, his 40s, and his 50s. By the time he's 60 or so, maybe a little lady was dead. And he lived, as I say, through rough times. There were programs right and left. Uh, in the latter part of his life, so first of all, it gets a lot of shadows with arguments in communities. Um, just very briefly, the um, Maril had a student who collected some of the shadows and shippers were published in the 1500s. But it was well known that a lot of them were missing. And uh, about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, they published the rest of them called Shadows and Shippers um, Hachadoshos. And uh, he's a very clear writer. It's a Machai to read his stuff. There's a true message in that regard, but he's more Myrich and more longer uh, prolix and uh, very clear. And he never says anything wild and crazy, at least I, not to my knowledge, right? But the opposite. Uh, to me, his most famous thing, and I've written about it in different places, is his famous connection with the result of the Vienna Xero and the, and the, and the captive women. In which case, he showed himself to be very uh, uh, normal and straightforward. Uh, I mentioned several times, in the latter years in Maril, they had what they called the Hussite Wars. That's the early Protestantism that eventually they were able to crush or wipe out mostly. There's a group in, in Bohemia where Czech, the Czechs are. They had tinies on the Catholic uh, religion. The leader was John Hus, and they, he was bur- and they promised him that they wouldn't harm him, and then they burned him which ticked off his, the Catholics did, his followers. And they had a bunch of wars. And the Catholics tried to crush and wipe him out, but they kept being beaten. My mother actually grew up in a town not far from where the uh, Hussite leader was, Zishka, John Zishka. Uh, he was a military genius. And, uh, you know, untaught, a natural military genius, he defeated the Catholic armies again and again. He was a tough son of a gun. When he died, he said, tear my skin off my body and turn it into a drum to lead the army. You know, these guys were tough. And the Hussites were like Oliver Cromwell type Christians. Like you say, not exactly, but something like the Jerry Falwell types. Not exactly, but they were much more sympathetic to the Jewish position on things. Um, some of them later converted to Judaism. It's a long story. I don't know. Now it's too long to get into it. Some famous names were actually... Jewish families, which are Hussites, who converted to Judaism in the 1500s. And the Kafka, for example, is like that. You know, not from Jewish background. But that cuts two ways. As a result of these wars, a lot of Catholics were <clears throat> very suspicious of the Jews. Right or wrong of the Jews helping them. And against that background, broke out many pogroms and massacres of Jews. Now, this itself was bad. Obviously. And it's a famous story that there was a whole army in the area of the Maril, in the Rhineland, and they were about to kill the Jews, and everybody was scared to death, and they followed whatever he said, and he said, fast three days, like Queen Esther. And some say even seven days. That means no food and water. Now, I'm not talking about Ramadan. I'm talking about no eating for, you know, 100 hours, 200 hours, whatever it is. And the story is that they did do that, and it worked. That the army that was going to wipe them out, something happened to the army, they fell apart. And the very famous scene, the soldiers who had been planning to take place in part of the pogroms now were penniless, and they had to come and beg food from the Jewish communities um, 
even though a week ago, two weeks ago, they were going to kill him. And Jewish communities, of course, gave him food. What can they do? You know, what are you going to do? Uh, but it means that the Marils fasting worked. At least that's how people attributed it. So he was a great Sadiq, you know. Whatever the exact facts are, but that's the famous story. And um, so he didn't himself, I told you before, where he was, was not the pogroms. But it was to the right of him and to the left of him, especially to the right of him in other parts of Germany. And uh, culminated in the, in the Vienna Xavier, as they call it, when the Jewish community in Vienna was wiped out. I mentioned it last week with the Truman suggestion. And that itself was terrible. They threw people in the river. They burned them. Uh, hundreds of people they burned. It was just bad news. But you also had the living, um, what's the right word? The, the, the living problems of the survivors. Because he had the famous question on the Shavuyos. And there was all these women that had been taken by the Catholics away from their husbands and brought up each one in separate Catholic houses with the idea that they would brainwash them and make them convert. Some did, some did not. Some were tortured to death. Most of them were raped. Oh, you're talking about rape. So you talk, well, how do you know it was rape? Maybe it was, honey, was honest. Maybe it was Bronson. Maybe she wanted to do it. And, and anywhere along the line, if she gave in, and, and did it willingly, then she saw it to her husband. Uh, this was the real frummies took the position that all the women, even the ones who escaped from the captivity, cannot go back to the husband because uh, you're afraid of this. And they, the Gemara has about this in Ksuba, says, you know, um, oh my goodness, what a terrible business. It's not bad enough that she was kidnapped, bad enough that she was tortured or raped, bad enough she suffered, and she didn't convert, otherwise she wouldn't be coming back. And somehow that she got out of that hell, and now she has to get divorced from her husband. You know what I'm saying? Now, there was a famous rabbi, Avram Katz, who was a big rabbi at that time. He said, that's the way it goes. And our hero was the big liberal. You know what I'm saying? Uh, women. Because it wasn't their fault. They were from the best families who had been arrested by the Catholics and put in under control of Catholic uh, families and, and bosses and nobles. Maybe they yielded to their captors. I'm talking about, no, sexually. They yielded to their captors lest they be beaten up or hurt. Um, lest they be beaten up or hurt. Or do you say, no, it was all rape. It was all bonus. And um, the Maril... He said, "I know these. I know this type of women." And he said, "Noshim hat nitfoses bochus brachmi Hashem." He said, "The from woman of Germany is trusting in brachmi Hashem. She's not giving in, and she believes that she'll get out of this somewhere or other. And she knows quite well that she's not. That she does willingly. She's going to mess herself up. You understand? And they said, "How can you be so sure of this?" And he said, You want to destroy every family in Germany? You leave no Jewish woman will be safe. Nobody will be able to be ma remain married. Because we all know these are everyday happenings. We cannot adopt a policy, as rabbis can't adopt a policy that's too harsh, because it can't be. Therefore I say to you, Rabbi Kess, Turn away from this Machmir policy. 
That's not how we saw the freer digger generations act in such cases. And he went on to develop a whole theory, what I call the Bill Clinton defense, that whatever they said, it was all bonus. And he even figured out, although it's not, he didn't explain in his true how even the women can go back to the husbands of Quran. I think I mentioned this before. Skipping all the details, what it meant is let, they let them just live together without Chubbuk Uh Which is remarkable. Notice he's willing to do whatever it takes to make the human side work. Now these are Gedol Yisrael. It's not some rabbi in the Veltorine, you know, um, you know, making something up. They're dealing with the Maril over here. But he was that type. Right? He was that type. By the way, I just want you to understand, these were mice that happened a lot of times in the 13, 1400s particularly. Other times in Jewish history. You think everybody, I mean, you don't know about yourself, mice, anybody doesn't know anything. Was this one of our ancestors? You get what I'm saying? I'm going to get very real over here. Suppose somebody, a lady was married, and everything was going great, and then she hit the gazero. And let's say she was violated. And let's say she escaped. And she was able to come back to the Jewish community, and thank, thanks to rabbis like the Maril or somebody like that, she's able to rejoin her family and get along with her life. But she's coming back pregnant. Do you understand? The father of the baby, some guy who raped her. What happens? But the boy's Jewish. You, you understand what I'm saying? So what is the status of this child? And does he grow up within the Jewish community? And does he have blonde hair and blue eyes, so to speak, and all the rest of it? And how does this get submission with the rest of the Jewish population? This is an uncomfortable subject. Right? This is something that had big consequences in the 1500s. Now it's not the time to go into it. But it's, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately it's part of life. Happened in the Holocaust. You know, these are not things that people want to discuss so much. But it doesn't mean it wasn't really, it wasn't there. It was there. But I re- I mentioned it to you to show you that this Marel, who people think of eh, as a minute guy, they're boring, like I say, Tachnon on Thursday or whatever. No, that's the easiest of his parts. He had to deal with these kind of Shilas. And all the women, all the husband went to him. Because they said like this, they said, I need emotional finds out. I need somebody who A is a god, all B is a tonic, and C is normal. You know what I'm saying? You know, if there's nothing to do, there's nothing to do. Sometimes it's like that. But if there's something to do, then don't be machmer. If there's something to do. This is what makes him uh, special. Uh, so I think this, this is part of the Maril that people don't know, in my opinion, because usually. To the degree they're familiar with Maril, they think about Minhagim and Sefer Minhagim, which is very important, no question about it. But what I just discussed is, I would say, more important than whether you eat apple or honey. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? To my future Duris. And believe me, these questions popped up in um, after the Holocaust and other times in Jewish history. Veramor records this in the Dark Emotion in uh, in Ezra in the beginning, in the Perg Vov somewhere or something like that. They called the Gezeris Ostrich. And, uh, uh, you see, Mario was a mover and shaker. Okay? So, uh, I forget exactly why. Toward the end of his life, he had to move out of town. Probably a guy came in and caused trouble for him. So he and Mr. Peaceful got himself undermined by somebody coming from the outside. You know, a snake entered the Garden of Eden. That is what could happen. But uh, I would therefore say that um, for everybody as such, 
It's very interesting if we get a hold of, uh, of a Sefer Marel with this nice edition, who's been out for 30 years, for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur Sokis and all the rest of it. I think you'll find it very interesting. That's number one. Now, by the way, I don't know why the Vilna Gong, I mean, Rechaim uh, said the Vilna Gong helped that the, the, the Marel is unreliable, something like that, and the guy who wrote it wasn't a Talmud Chacham, which, as far as I know, is not true. Uh, I, I, I didn't quite understand that. That's not how most Jews have regarded it. God is very authoritative, reflective of the great um, Minhagim of the past. Um, so I would therefore say that uh, you find it very interesting if you're able to read it. Somebody could do a very nice job if they translate my real into English, which would not be so hard. Uh, you want to do some, if, if you're the type listening to this, there's a translator type, just do the my real on Shabbos, just do the my real on Pesach, just do the my real on, on Gittin even, you know, because it's on other parts of the Shulchanach as well. And you'll, uh, it would translate very nicely. It would be very interesting historical material. Those who are able to, you go for the Shals and Shuvah Samaril. And I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. Because it, it's pretty readable. Uh, it's not short necessarily, but it's pretty readable. I would say. Especially if you get the good editions with the footnotes. Now they have you know, the Mechon Yushalayim ones. And the Shalos are very interesting. And the human side of it is always jumping out. Because that's the type of time in which he lived. And these are the type of Gedolia Yisrael that people look to because, like I said before, you want somebody who's very firm and all the right. Yeah, that's true. But you want someone who's not going to be more Machmer when it's not necessary to be Machmer. But he's not going to be more Mekel when it's not necessary to be Mekel. You want normal in the middle. You want in the middle. And uh, the Muriel comes across as that type. I said he was a lucky. He was lucky in the sense that his book, which was published by the student, took off. He achieved this uh, mythical personality in the minds of the Jewish people and became one of these gadolim that everybody heard about and thought highly of, but very few people actually read, except those are the people who are interested in questioning and hug him. You know, if you're a Mishnah Brewer type or something like that. Uh, and in that regard, you know, he, he's in a certain class. Um, the if you're a Yaki, then you'll read the Maril with particular interest because you'll see a lot of sources of what you do. If you're not, many times you'll say, hey, the Maril said this, and that's not exactly what we do. Okay, big deal. I said before, get the other book, Rabbi Isaac Turnauer, and there you'll probably see the source of what you do. Not necessarily, because things have not been frozen since the 1400s. Newman hug and pop up. Men hug and reflect a wide variety of, of causes. I've said many times, I lived through changes of several Menhagim in my little life. For example, dropping Perky Elvis and things like that on Shabbos, you know. I've seen things come and go. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I, I, I've certainly lived to see Tishabel radically change its character. Uh, that's what Menhagim is, is. It reflects the real life. If the Jewish people were not a living organism, but just a dead book, then you can know everything about the Jews by reading a dead book. You can never do that. If you go to Israel or Lakewood anywhere today, you can't just go by what's in a book. You have to go by what the people do. They try to stay by by the book, but there's always a connection on there. And so, in these few words, I tried to show how the subject of minhug is always, a, what's the right word? Not volatile, that's not the right word. But it's always cooking. And, uh, it's always reflected the fact 
that the Jews are a living organism. A living organism are constantly changing one way or the other. So with that, I will uh, leave you. I hope to follow up my advice and check out the Maril this week especially and now coming up for the Yom Tovim. And with that, I bid you a good week. Uh, and once again, I thank Robert Weil and his family for the sponsorship. I hope we can get some others over here. We have some empty spots. And with that, I say to you, have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.